Greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health radio show where we talk about the crossroads of the environment and our health with Richard Talk to Me Guy, me, and as we know, Sherry Edwards is off working on the soundhealthportal.com. Currently, really, I'm, I'm still sticking with this regarding the Sound Health Portal. I really suggest going to the soundhealthportal.com, scrolling to the bottom, clicking on the video tab, finding a video, which is a recording of Sherry doing a live online webinar with somebody, showing how the Sound Health Portal works, doing a workup with that person. Pick a video that you find the category interesting. Watch that video, because if you watch the video, learning about the Sound Health Portal will be much more, you'll see it and go, wow, that's amazing. I didn't know we could get that much information or just the way that it really allows a practitioner, a Barra, Bioacoustic Associate Research Associate, there we go. It just allows you to get so much information and seeing it done visually makes more sense than me talking about it for a long time. So I really do advocate for going to soundhealthportal.com, scrolling down past all the stuff that you're going to go, oh, I want that. I want to check that out. Yes, that's all true. Go down, watch the video first because the setup will make ever so much more sense. And you can go back and look at some of the current campaigns, which are the free software packages where they're allowing you to just try all the software and choose one like, let's say, Corona Conflict or Fibromyalgia or Biodat. You can choose one of those, and then it'll walk you through doing that. And it'll just make so much more sense after you watch the video. So that's at soundhealthportal.com. To hear and share replays of the show, about 20 to 30 minutes after you hear the outro music, you can go to talktomeguy.com, all one word. Scroll down that page, and you'll see the episodes, and at the top of this, the list of episodes. Now about 380 episodes, just there. You can scroll down that page, and you'll see the show notes for this show with Diana Gifford-Jones. And there's a lot here. We're going to talk about the world of plastics. And you'll be able to scroll down that page, see the show notes, see all the links that we refer to in the conversation. And at the bottom corner of that show, those show notes is a microphone. And if you want to leave me a message, it works really easy on a mobile device, but you can also do it by, on a computer by just clicking on the microphone and your computer will ask you, do you want to allow access to your mic? And you can leave me a message. And either with a question or a comment or how about this person or how about that person and could we follow up with this kind of question? And you can find that at the show notes, in any of the show notes for the shows that are there. And you can find that all at talktomeguy.com. There's also links at the bottom, right below that, is a, right below the show notes, is a player that works really well on mobile devices and as well as on computers. But everybody, a lot of people are listening to stuff on their mobile devices. And you just click right there and listen. And or link through, click through to about half a dozen podcast aggregators, which is just fancy speak for an app that allows you to listen to the show through whatever app you like, like I prefer Pocket Cast. With that, Diana McKay writes in collaboration with her father under the pen name Diana Gifford-Jones. The daughter of W. Gifford-Jones, M.D., Diana has extensive global experience in health and healthcare policy. Diana is a special advisor with the Aga Khan University, which operates two quaternary care hospitals and numerous secondary hospitals, 
medical centers, pharmacies, and laboratories in South Asia and Africa. She is AKU's Global Practice Lead for the Institute of Global Health and Development and the Brain and Mind Institute. She worked for 10 years in the human development sectors at the World Bank, including health policy and economics, nutrition, and population health. For over a decade at the Conference Board of Canada, she managed four health-related executive networks, including the Roundtable on Socioeconomic Determinants of Health, the Centre for Chronic Disease Prevention and Management, the Canadian Centre for Environmental Health, and the Centre for Health System Design and Management. Her master's degree in public policy at Harvard University School of Government included coursework at Harvard Medical School. She's also a graduate of Wesley College. Diana has extensive experience with Canadian universities, including at Carleton University, where she was the executive director of the Global Academy. She lived and worked in Japan for four years and speaks Japanese fluently. Diana has a designation as a certified charter director from the Directors College, a joint venture of the Conference Board of Canada and McMaster University. She has published a book on the natural health philosophy of W. Gifford Jones called No-Nonsense Health Naturally. Diana joins us to talk about plastic soup and environmental degradation and the long-term effects on nature's and our health. Welcome, Diana. Thank you so much. Great to be here. I'm going to start with a quote because I just have to. Why is humankind so bent on destruction? Why so apathetic in the face of annihilating warfare, repeated massive oil spills, and choking urban smog? Equally awful is the plastic soup in our oceans. This is the opener from an article published on February 26, 2022, on the docgif.com articles page. So my question from that is, do you get emails from people saying, hey, what are we doing? What's that? What are you talking about smog and plastic? Why aren't we talking about health and blood pressure and vitamin C? How do people react to you writing that way? And I mean that in the best of ways. You know, I, I was the first one to read this column because it was written by my father in, in draft and sent to me for my consideration because we're writing the column together now. Right. And it broke my heart to read it. You know, mm-hmm. my father is now 98 years old and he's been writing this health column. He's a medical doctor and had a long career as a surgeon. And, and then he picked up a second career, you know, halfway through his first one as a medical journalist and started this column and, and wrote it for 45 years on his own. And I started collaborating with him. And, you know, this was an example of a column where I was thinking, the poor guy has to write this kind of thing at the end of a lifetime of trying to help people see the path forward that will, mm-hmm. you know, help us all lead healthy lives ourselves, but also set up, set up the, the systems for our children to enjoy happy lives and our grandchildren. And, you know, I, I, I wondered what made him do it, what made him write this article about plastic soup. And it was nothing more than a, a, a picture in, you know, one of the papers about this beach in, Florida, in uh, Hawaii that has mm-hmm. all this garbage, you know. And, and so, we, you know, he started to do some looking into what's going on about what's devastating the Hawaiian beaches, his favorite spot to go when he was a younger man for vacation. Mm-hmm. He felt wow. his attachment to it, you know. And 
no matter how you look at it, you know, you can't deny it. There's a lot of trash in the oceans and, and it's probably incumbent on, on the two of us as health journalists to write about these kinds of issues as opposed to just writing about cardiovascular disease or one kind of cancer or another and, you know, what you need to do to care for yourselves when you get into those kinds of situations. We need to start writing about our oceans and plastics, um, which might be well outside the domain of a typical health journalist, but it shouldn't be. And I can tell you our readers, you know, are starting to sense, fortunately, I think, um, this subtle shift that we've been making recently in the column. Um, some readers will write in to us and say, you know, where's the W. Gifford Jones that we are familiar with? And that's the one that's sort of witty and commenting on lifestyle choices that we all make day to day and, you know, don't smoke and alcohol in moderation and all these kinds of things. But the vast majority of people who write in say, thank you, thank you, thank you. These are the issues we need health journalists to be talking about. Uh, I did not know is often the response we get from our readers. I had no idea, oh. you know, why are we not learning this kind of thing from other sources? And uh, so that's, that's what gives you a little bit of a flavor of, of what we're hearing from the audience we reach. Well, and for me, it's exciting because as we were talking backstage, I've been, well, not yelling, in my mind maybe yelling, into a microphone since the 90s. And before that, I was making films for the Sierra Club and doing work. So I've been talking about the environment for a really long time. So it's exciting. And I, I do see also this trend in doctors that I'm interviewing who were either cardiovascular doctors or GI doctors, you know, just a broad spectrum of doctors that are writing now nutrition books or leaning toward, oh, we have to do that. We really want to benefit the microbiome because we're getting glyphosate in our diets and that's destroying it. And, you know, just this whole amazing thing where there is this wonderful opening, just like what you're doing now, you and doc are doing is looking at the big picture because not only did people not know about the plastic soup, but they don't know about the effects and the estrogen mimickers and just everything that all the garbage that we put in the ocean, because not just the ocean, but everywhere in the air. Mm. So for me, it's exciting is for somebody who's been yakking about it for a long time to hear it coming to like, did you know? Wow. No, I didn't. That's terrible. What can we do? That's kind of the reaction I'm looking for is always, what can we do? And I, I enjoy, I've always enjoyed reading the column ever since I started interviewing Doc. I don't know, several years back, I'll say. I have no sense of real time. Mm. And it's exciting to see that happening, I think. It's harsh because it's really true. And it does, I mean, when you look at the real photographs of the plastic in our oceans, it's mind-blowing. But just the overall picture of our environment is important. We should take care of it because it's going to bite us in the butt if we don't. You know, and we'll talk, I'm sure, a little bit more about that plastic in a second, but I just want to add another dimension to this. And that's, uh-huh. I'm, I'm seeing the same thing in the scientific community. Um, you know, th- thank you for reading out that hugely long bio and remind me to send you a shorter one for next time. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the thing that I'm actually doing day to day is interacting with a lot of um, medical doctors who are working in the university environment. So they're not so much clinicians, many of them, as they are professors. And, and I think this is a bit of a hypothesis I have about what's happening in, in recent decades, let's say. But 
as this discovery research has been taking place and evolving, there's always been a need and there will always be a need for research with incredible depth of expertise in their specific areas. You know, we need people doing fundamental research at the forefront of science in their very specific niches to help discover new things that are important. But I think more than ever, there's now a recognition that we also need scientists that have tremendous breadth of expertise. Mm -hmm. And we don't yet recognize them. I don't think there's any Nobel Prize for a scientist that has done a good job of connecting scientists, you know. But I think that's where things are headed. And now we see more and more scientists studying the linkages between things. And you can see it right now in the climate change file. You know, it's all about climate change and health. It's all about climate change and, you know, even things like mental health or, you know, issue X and issue B and, by the way, issue C. We need people that can kind of translate across these areas of tremendous depth and, and do it at a scientific level. And I'm seeing that happening in the scientific community. And that is, I think, refreshing and needed. And I think that's really exciting. I think of, um, I'm just picking him off of the top of my head because I talked to him a couple months ago, uh, William Davis, who's a cardiovascular specialist. Mm-hmm. And he was actually wrote about three or four years ago, I interviewed him when he wrote the Wheat Belly book, talking about wheat and how tricky it can be and why it can be tricky mm-hmm. in terms of uh, how it grows and retains all its genetic, uh, it's a mess. <laughs> in a bad way. And then on top of that, you add the pesticides and the GMOs and the chemicals and the ever so evil glyphosate to all that mix. And so he's he's gone from writing a book about that, and he's a cardiovascular surgeon. There's, yeah. you know, that's like his thing. And, and there was a time like, like Doc, like your dad, he was a cardiologist. Or no, he was actually a gynecologist. Yeah, and so they would, they would, they would kind of... <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Uh, They would kind of stick in their arena. And I see this bleeding through in other doctors that I've interviewed that are stepping out and going, like Davis's recent book was about gut health and talking about making your own yogurt to benefit your gut. Because ultimately, if you have a healthy gut, you'll have a healthy immune system. And if you have a healthy immune system, maybe your thinking will be a little clearer and sharper and all that. So I see it on the outside, and I'm excited to hear that in academia and research, there's a beginning to be some of that as well as like looking more for generalists in a certain way. I'm I'm old enough that my doctor for decades was a GP, yeah, just an old school general practitioner, no particular yeah. specialty. Yeah, hey, you better not eat that. You know, it was a kind of that thing. It was really straightforward. Yeah. Um, you might want to put some salve on that. I mean, it was very, it was great. And I'm excited to hear that you see that in academia because you're so in that world of research in academia that that's yeah. beginning to leak through. I, you know, and that's not to say there weren't greats that came before. You know, I, I think in another column we, we wrote about um, are we keeping our kids too clean, you know, and in that column we referenced uh, Sir Mel Greaves, who's a, a biologist, but uh-huh. uh, an, 80, an 80-year-old biologist at this point and still working really hard to... Um, do some of that translational thinking around what's happening in in sort of the world of biology that is playing out in the the lives of our kids today. You know, he's he's advocating for 
not keeping your kids too clean in the earliest years of life because they do a lot of work at that point building up the the effectiveness of their immune system and fighting off bugs. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, so I want to pay tribute a little bit to the the greats that have done the kinds of things we're talking about. But um, more and more, I think there's a volume issue, which is good. You know, well, my love, I was gonna, I was gonna actually quote, quote Greaves later because I, that's a great column. All the columns that we talk about, I will put links in the show notes for people because there are going to be a number of links that we're going to talk about. And I love his Greaves call. There, he's talking about children who are immunosuppressed because they've been kept in. He calls it, and I love this, uh, Lysol prison. Right. I think that is such a great term. I would so wear a baseball cap with that on it um, for some other brand because it's so true. I've, I know people now who raise their kids and, you know, like sanitizing them every time they blink and it has nothing to co COVID. I'm just turning in terms of how they raise their kids. Yeah. And then I'm, I've watched them grow up and then they have allergies and have stuff because get in the dirt. Dirt is our friend. We're part mm-hmm. of the earth. Um, yeah. All of that. So I, I love that phrase. Yeah, and and that's where we've lost a little bit, I think, with all of the um, the, these we, we've, we, you know, the, our grandmothers used to teach us that kind of thing. I'm pretty sure. And and grandma's voice, I think, has been suppressed by uh, all these commercials we see on the TV. So you know, it's much more authoritative. Um, you, you can trust the TV because certainly there's smart stuff behind that, and and the wisdom that grandma had through passing down, you know, eons and eons of uh, best practice. Just we, we've lost that, unfortunately. Right. I call that the bright light, shiny table issue. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, the experts are speaking because they have a white coat and a stethoscope around their neck. And I'm not anti-doctor. I'm just saying, in terms of how it's portrayed on television, whenever they want to talk about something, it's in a lab. They're in a fake lab, or maybe a real lab, standing in a white coat talking about the latest thing to whiten your teeth. And everybody's yeah. like, oh, it's an expert because you have the white coat on. No, yeah. not necessarily. Yeah. You know, that's, it's funny you mentioned that because um, W.W. Jones, my father, you know, he, he he tries desperately not to be seen as in a white coat. But, you know, a lot of the a lot of the people today that sort of want to help us with brand or keep throwing a white coat on them. We're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Take it off. That's so not who he is. <laughs> so let's dive back into this wonderful article. And I say that with a lilty voice because we're going to talk about plastic soup, a disastrous meal. Mm-hmm. This is a great, a great column. I mean, may, there's so many great columns. And again, I'll put a reference to the, in the show notes about the articles page because you have a lot of you know, wonderful articles. But this particular plastic soup, a disastrous meal. And, and then we're going to talk and then I want you to lean into talking about healthcare itself and its contribution to the plastics dilemma, I'll call it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think it's a really, this is unfortunately really bad news uh, story. Um, The concern with the plastics in the ocean is, is, is not, I mean, it's, it looks horrible and it certainly is disastrous for the, you know, we can see some of it in the form of, whales that are eating the plastic and you know the animals that have their bellies cut open and you can see pounds and pounds and pounds of trash in their bellies um, that's heartbreaking but the the main point of the article is really around these nanoparticles the microplastics the very 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 small small pieces smaller than you can see 
um, that are distributed in the water everywhere. And they've been found throughout the depths of the ocean and, and across all the oceans on planet Earth. They're everywhere. They're out there already. And I don't know if anyone has any idea how we're going to clean that up. Um, hopefully there will be some, some solutions to that in time. I don't think there's anything going right now. But those microplastics are being ingested. Animals are um, feeding on them. And, and then, you know, there's the food chain. It goes right up. And, and what the concern is, is that these nanoparticles can break through the, you know, the membranes, the, even the blood-brain membranes in our bodies. And that's really hard to penetrate. Uh, but they're doing it. And the point of the article was that we really have no idea what the consequences are uh, for our health and for future diseases, uh, the emergence of future diseases from, from these, uh, you know, the, the plastics, if you want to call them that, um, that, are, that are impossible to see and, and out there. So um, what, what do we do about it, basically, is, is the challenge I think we all need to start to face. And how can we... Uh, I, I got hung up because I'm, I'm thinking about, I'll, I'll say this in brief, uh, Stephanie Seneff, uh, when I interviewed her for her Toxic Legacy book, which is about glyphosate, one of the issues that I see, she was talking about one of the reasons Brazil had such big outbreaks when COVID first was happening. She researched and found that in Brazil, Brazil uses a high-level which is great, of ethanol, meaning that they produce a synthetic, a, a synthetic fuel, not meaning out of chemistry, but out of taking corn and putting it running through digesters and ending up with methane that they then in turn into ethanol. And so they run their cars on about 50% ethanol. Great. Mm -hmm. You're using yeah. less gas. The tricky part is in Brazil, they're using GMO corn. Mm -hmm. And they spray it as a, as a defoliator meaning that if you spray glyphosate, which is Roundup, on the product or plant right before harvest, a lot of the leaves and the stuff that they have to fight off the husk, or this is true of all plants, particularly wheat, and they harvest that and they take all that, what would be trash, and they turn it into fuel. But the trick is that then, because you're taking it with a product that has glyphosate on it, you make it into a fuel. That doesn't get, the glyphosate doesn't get broken down. It's very persistent. Yeah. But you end up vaporizing that glyphosate in the fuel in the air. Yeah. So yeah. we're adding badness to that. And really what I, where I was going with that was I think about uh, I've been going to environmental shows for since the 90s, since the 80s. And I remember early on there was somebody that was featuring the fact that they had a new plastic bottle. And their, their proud point was that it was made from corn. Well, right. you know, fill in the blanks. <laughs> I have so many bad words. Like, great, but really? Corn? Oh, my God. And so that's the, that's the trick is we have substitutes for plastic, but then we have to lo really look at the scale of where's that plastic be coming from? Is it coming from a food product like soy or corn, which is just GMO city for the most part and often sprayed with glyphosate? So how do we, do you see a, a world in the hospital realm or the healthcare world where we can sort of, I don't know, 
change that or reorient that or how do we how do we improve that? Yeah, you know, you mentioned a couple of things. One, one is um, where these small particles are, and I, you're right, it's not just the oceans; it's in the air too. So, right. um, you know, another column we wrote was about do we all need to wear respiratory masks? And we weren't talking about COVID in that article. We're talking <laughs> right. about the air yeah. we breathe in, the air we breathe yeah. out. And, um, but um, yeah, then then, so what do we do? Um, yeah, you know, we have a couple ideas. I mean, we're just journalists trying to identify good ideas and, you know, hopefully there's many, many, many other people out there that have, you know, that are putting their careers, their life work into, into these questions. But the healthcare industry itself absolutely is a problem. Um, yeah. That's where, uh, if you look at the, um, the amount of emissions that come from just people getting care through the healthcare system, it's astounding. Yeah. Yeah. And so we did a quick calculation that saw that if, if the if the global healthcare sector were a country, it'd be the fifth largest greenhouse gas emitter. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 stunning. You know, um, I don't want to read off all the stats. You know, here's another one: 4.4 percent of global net emissions uh, come from the healthcare sector, and and that's the equivalent of running um, 514 coal-fired power plants. You know. Huh. And the United States alone is, is, is the number one emitter and producing 57 times more emissions per person than does a country like India. So healthcare is probably not where people are looking, um, but it should be included in the, in, in the calculus here. And as we write in our article, you know, what individuals can do, number one thing you can do is just do everything you can to stay healthy. You know, it's good for you, it's, it's good for your family, but is it ever good for Mother Earth as well? You know, you, you don't tax the healthcare system by getting care. You're helping reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the healthcare sector. It's a so radical it's, idea. Just stay healthy. That was sort yeah. of my, that's been my, I can't say it's been a rant, but it's a, it's a soft rant. I'm a, I'm a gentle ranter. Well, not always, <laughs> not in person. Um, that during this whole uh, I'll call it back uh, pandemic, because if we use the other word, it gets tricky with editing sometimes for the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how I have been talking about with all of my friends around me and everybody freaking out. I'm like, are you taking NAC? Are you taking vitamin C every day? Are you, I mean, I take, because of your father, and I mean that in mm-hmm. the best of ways, I take a lot more vitamin C than I used to. I always took vitamin C, but not this much. I'm sort yeah. of in the five to six grams a day zone. Yeah. It's a lifestyle. It's yeah. just a general lifestyle. I haven't been sick. I don't really get sick. Um, I did have some bad incident in 2013 when I was hospitalized in a healthcare facility for a year. But that I'll go back to that because I want to talk about plastic again. But it's just amazing how that's really it. Do stuff that helps you not get sick. Stay healthy. How about yeah. that? Yeah. That's a radical idea. That's so radical. I mean, you know, in the best of ways. And to do it, you know, maybe the recipe to do it isn't all that complicated, but it's worth repeating. You know, you have to eat well. You have to get some exercise every day. And I recently heard somebody say, you know, about exercise, do it as if your life depended on it, because 
so many people find it hard to get up and go out and get a little exercise. They just don't want to do it. They don't like the feeling either before, during, or after, perhaps. I don't know. But yeah. um, it, it really is an important part of this formula. You mentioned vitamin C and the four to six grams is a lot. That's a high dose. And, and the high dose C, as my father has written about for years, isn't just about immune health. It's a part of it. But it's cardiovascular health, too. Those high doses are helping fight atherosclerosis in the veins, you know, the buildup of plaque. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so that high-dose vitamin C is also something that's simple, easy, not expensive in the grand scheme of things. And, um, and then the, the last little piece, you know, there's probably some others, but you got to get a good sleep as well. Um, more and more research is showing the importance of sleep and it's important to so many aspects of our health, including um, preventing the onset of, of uh, things like our, um, Alzheimer's disease. Uh-huh. Um, certainly, uh, a lot of us are struggling with getting enough sleep in the modern era and we're seeing our kids um, struggle with that and stay struggling with it throughout early adulthood and this is not going to be good uh, for the future. So, I'd add a good sleep um, to the list of things that we need to be trying to accomplish each day. Uh-huh. And back to uh, healthcare. Mm-hmm. So I was in a healthcare facility for a year because I mm-hmm. had about 30 hours of surgery and it was spread out a period of time. And in that time, I was who I am now in terms of attitude. <laughs> I was like, my attitude is always kind of this, like take vitamin C and be healthy. And it just blew my mind. I was in a facility where there were three people per room with with sheets in between you, basically curtain. We call them curtains, but they look like sheets. And it was amazing how much plastic waste there was every day. Yeah. Just for the three people, I mean, I was it's some I was bedridden for not quite a month. I was able to ambulate somewhat, but I was on a walker, and then I was doing a lot of walking eventually. But as I, it would just, every time somebody would come in to do something for you, you would hear that. I can still hear the sound of the plastic being ripped open as they pull out an instrument or a tube or a pad or a something. Yeah. And it was just mind-blowing. It, it's like a plastic factory Yeah. in the sense yeah. of how much they use for everything. And I understand that it needs to be sterile. Mm-hmm. And yet, come on. Yeah. And yeah. I have this no real weird. good answer there. It just blows my mind. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about what the answers might be and see if mm-hmm. we can inspire some of the readers or readers, listeners for you. Um, <laughs> yeah. See if we can inspire some of them to, to you know, maybe there's a, a few that are good at the startup kind of um, thing. Yeah. Um, there are no doubt solutions to that problem. If, if we applied our innovation skills to the question of excessive use of plastics in healthcare settings, uh, recognizing the need for sterile environments, what could be some of the solutions? I have no doubt whatsoever that all kinds of entrepreneurs will be able to fix that problem. We just need to tell them there's a problem there and get them cracking on it because the, to date, the, the money's been made in creating all those, price, those uh, products. You know, that's been, that's been the focus. Let's create the products that will solve the sterility issue, um, keep the hospitals clean. So you see all kinds of cleaning and all kinds of, of wrap, you know. Um, now we just need to get the folks working on, on 
the next problem, which is, okay, not so much packaging, please, not so much plastic, keep it clean, but find the solution. So I think they'll do that. Um, I think another part of the solution has to be consumer demand. Um, you and I are both in the business of telling people about these issues, and uh-huh. we need to um, make our voices as loud as possible and, and, and amplify the number of people that are doing this kind of thing so that consumer demand can actually function effectively. It doesn't help if you just get little pockets of consumers trying to protest. We need, uh-huh. we need large numbers of consumers refusing to use those products um, and demanding change. Uh-huh. Can I list a few oh, more? Yes, please. Are you happy to? Because I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to chat with you about other things, but I've got to share well, 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 let me let me pause for just a moment and say that yeah. it was, so, let's say, eight years ago, eight to ten years ago. I was at a conference that I go to every year until the pandemic occurred called Bioneers. And it's an mm-hmm. environmental conference where people come from all over the world. And they come from countries where they're trying to help people grow food, where they have, as I say, a bucket of sand and some rocks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that kind of, you know, it's all the way from that to organized big ag. And it was on one of the panels that was talking about healthcare. This is that long ago, healthcare. And on one of the on one of the panels talking about healthcare was uh, I can't remember her exact title, but she was, I'll call a big wig in the world of Kaiser Permanente Hospital Systems, which in Northern California, there's a huge network and Kaiser is huge and in, in general. Mm-hmm. And she talked about one of the things that Kaiser had done, because this was that long ago, but it was at an environmental conference where everybody's already in that mood of like, what are we doing? Right. And somebody asked her, is there anything Kaiser can do to help reduce that? And she said that they had gone to the people who make their uh, banana bags, their solution, their their plastic bags filled with saline. Mm-hmm. Really, that's it, just that. And said, we'd like to be able to reuse those bags more than once. Just even twice would be a stunning amount of reduction of waste. Mm-hmm. And the manufacturer said, oh, we can't do that. And Kaiser Permanente said, we'll find somebody who can. And suddenly that manufacturer figured it out. Yeah, yeah. So I think that kind of organization, and as you say, get the consumers going and talking to people, but that kind of power of saying, if you don't do this for us, we will find somebody who will. Yes, that's right. And and there are now also uh, sort of very powerful brokers that are trying to help. You know, it's again, it's a challenge if it's one buyer and one company and the company's got many buyers uh the company can afford to you know sell it somewhere else oftentimes but when you get a bit of a broker you know finessing the coalition um it it changes things and and in my work in africa in particular i'm seeing this around the healthcare sector where some uh, very helpful brokers are working at the interface between governments and businesses trying to and and healthcare sector as well um, negotiating deals that will allow for the kinds of things that you and I are talking about to happen. Um, so that, that's promising too. That's exciting to know about. There's a, um, I have this, I think I have a tab open here someplace. There's a young man who I heard interviewed by an associate of mine and he's in Africa and I can't tell you where right now, but I'll find out and send you the information. And what he has done is he has built a factory and he's paying people locally to bring him plastic. 
Now, it's mm. mostly plastic bottles, that kind of plastic, harder plastic, yeah. but still plastic. Yeah. And so the, the people surrounding his factory are bringing in plastics. He pays them for that plastics. He then takes those plastics and breaks them down and combines them in manufacturing bricks. Yeah. And yeah. so he's taking the plastic and he's repurposing it. Now, I have health questions about, okay, so if it rains on that brick, what ha- does the plastic brick, all that. But setting that aside, he's okay. actually repurposing the plastic in a brick that he can then sell for a dime less per brick. And then he's currently selling back to schools at a reduced rate. And so we're rec- he's paying – the villagers are making money. He's making money. And we're reducing the load of plastic. I mean, it's one tiny little step, but it's an amazing great step. Yeah. And actually, that. He's actually doing something with it. More of that, what you're talking about, that yeah. entrepreneurial, I can do this. I can figure this out. Yeah, that's right. That. He needed a million times over. Um, and and, and the, so the, the, the example I was talking about where there's, there's these brokers, um, what, what's fascinating and, and really promising about this is that they're operating at much larger scale. So, for example, a foundation, sometimes it's a, an American foundation, um, thank, thank you very much, because you've got many of them that have the wherewithal to do this kind of thing. Um, they're going in and they're signing up front. You know, we're talking about many millions of dollars often. Uh, they're financing up front sort of a guarantee of, of profitability for the companies that are going to be required to make some kind of a big change to reduce their carbon footprint. It costs companies to do these kinds of things. And let's just say it costs a company $10 million to, to repackage something differently. And what they would typically do is pass on that cost to their customers. But in places like Africa and many other places, you know, they just won't do it because they, they can't be sure that they're going to have the customers that are a, able to buy the higher price good or the, or the confidence that the buyers will be there. So these foundations are basically purchasing up front the products um, and giving the companies the confidence to proceed. And then if it works, of course, they pay back the foundations in the future. Um, so it's a bit of a combination of a, of a, a charitable giving exercise, but it's also an investment if it works out well. And, and, and because they know what they're doing, it's looking more and more like a smart investment. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things are are quite, you know, those that may be a big part of how we get out of this mess. That would be very exciting. I like. I also like the idea of. I know uh, I've interviewed a bunch of people about hemp, and I'm a big fan of hemp. Not just for the CBD, but hemp is a fiber. Hemp is a food source. Hemp is kind mm-hmm. of an easy crop to grow because it's really a weed, and it's aggressive in its growth patterns. And there's a gentleman who there's all sorts of wonderful things. Actually, Canada, Canada, who knew? Canada has been doing stuff with hemp way before America. Yeah. Long time ago. Yeah. And because I've interviewed a woman up there whose name I can't recall at this second, uh, talking about using hemp in sheetrock because it increases its tensile strength. It also, I know people who use uh, hemp sheetrock in their audio studios because it has better dampening of sound. Hmm. And it's also mold resistant because it's hemp. Hemp is organically, naturally hemp uh, mold resistant. It's not treated with anything. It's just hemp, hemp fiber. And now there's somebody, now there are a couple of people, now there's this thing with hempcrete, 
where they actually combine hemp and concrete together. And then the next step is I've seen people who have these wonderful systems where they take hemp concrete and they build blocks and fill the internal space with hemp, which is an excellent insulator because it really is a great insulator. And again, it's mm -hmm. also an insulator and fire resistant and living in the part of California that burned badly years right. ago. That is always a subject. And he's actually invented a system where you can, you don't need mortar. He's designed it so the bricks, you can build a two-story house using these bricks that key into each other. So they lock into place with each other. You still need framework. I mean, it's not you're just building a house stacking bricks, but you are able to do these amazing things. And you have all of the benefits of hemp and you have the benefit of the bricks are slightly more expensive, but you don't have the labor involved to build mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. in getting mortar and it's i love this kind of inventiveness uh, yeah not I, doing I it so much it. here yet yeah I, I i'm not familiar with all of that but does that ever sound great another example of, of uh you know the, the, you're kind of talking i mean hemp isn't really what we think of when we think about science and big science but it is in a way isn't it because people are learning about the properties of hemp um but the, the scientific community is another place we should all look for for innovation i think um, we'll see some really amazing things coming out of labs in due course uh, that will help as well, um, you know, help us all lead smarter lives and do construction better and do every industry better. Um, so th that's another area of promise, I, I'm sure. A lot of scientists mm -hmm. are trying to figure out. And in fact, you know, um, here's another kind of sign of the times. Um, the university that I work at overseas, we've got a couple very large parcels of land, uh, one in Pakistan and one in East Africa and in Tanzania, where we had planned to build campuses, you know, bricks and mortar, a lot of roads and, you know, uh, sewage systems and water systems and dormitories and undergraduate education and graduate education, you know, faculty for this, faculty for that, all the buildings and so on and so forth, the big pieces of land, 5,000 plus acres. And oh. decisions just recently been taken not to do that. Um, and, and it's fascinating to ask the question, why? Because, I, it, you know, it's hard to tell people in, in these parts of the world, low and middle income countries, you're not going to build a university, um, another campus, you know, which will produce all kinds of human capital. But it looks like the way people are calculating the return on the investment now is including an ecological factor. You know, there's, mm. a, there's a return on the investment in leaving the land as it is and, and doing research instead of, you know, just building more buildings for people to sit in and, and learn in a classroom. So that's really big and exciting, I think, and a sign of the times. I hope, I hope you see the same kind of, you know, good news story there that I do. That's very exciting to hear the idea of adding the environmental, whatever the term is they would use, adding in the environmental consideration. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, all that. kinds of economists do this. You know, the economist factor, you know, they think about what's the return on investment in, in economic terms. And there they're usually calculating just financial numbers. But we recently started getting economists thinking about, well, what's the social uh, you know, impact of um, of some kind of an investment. And more recently, I think we're seeing well, what's the environmental impact. 
and uh, and this will definitely change the calculations, and it will require economists to get um, more familiar with with very longer terms. Um, in and and that's what's needed, isn't it? When we uh-huh. think about these things, we can't keep calculating, you know, on a quarter by quarter returns um, for profitability of the, of companies and so on. Um, so. That, you know, if we if we started to calculate things differently, I think we'd see a, a different kind of return on investment that would be friendlier to to the earth, friendlier to our long-term health and well-being, certainly more considerate to our children. Um, that's that's promising, I think. May it be so. <laughs> that comes from a, no. a different person yeah. that I work with, but it's like, really, may it be so. Let's just have that in the universe is that that's happening now. I love that. That would be so yeah, great. And, and, and to make it be so, that's when we all need to do a better job of using the biggest tool we have, the biggest lever, and that's our government, uh-huh. um, local level, provincial, or in your case, state, uh, and federal levels. Um, we've got to exert more influence on how they make decisions as well. They're just a tool uh-huh. of ours. Uh, yeah. They're nothing more than our tool, and we can only blame ourselves for bad governance. So... Um, you know, we all need to be as active as we can in that area too. Yeah. I have another uh, shining example of reinventing. And that was, uh, I know that you lived in Japan. Yeah. And there's an architect, an American architect, William McDonough, who's uh, one of his big projects in America. He's done unbelievable projects worldwide from cleaning up canals in Japan using plant matter to do that, working with John Todd. But also one of the things he did is, I don't know how he got invited to do this. Maybe he spent time in Japan and he thought, I need to do something about this. In Japan, they had, uh, I think they were bento boxes that you would buy and then you'd get on the train and you'd eat this box lunch called a bento Mm -hmm. box. And then they'd throw that out the window. (laughs) And that was a plastic, you know, dumb old bad box. Mm -hmm. And William just thought that was horrible. And he's, I, I've actually met him again at this Pioneers Conference. And he decided to reinvent that box, and he did. And what he did is he reinvented the box so that, okay, it's still bento box. People don't even know that they're getting a new improved box. And they would then throw it out the window. And he made this box so that it would dissolve. And farmers would then take that box, gather them along the trains, because it would dissolve in the soils. They'd work it into the soils, and it would be a nitrogen source for the plants. Mm-hmm. So he completely changed by one, I mean, that's a pretty simple move, is yeah. by reinventing this box, now farmer, it's it's part of, I think it's part of that clever part of independent people thinking, not that you can't be part of a large organization, but thinking outside, I'm going to say it, outside the box. Yeah. And I, it had to happen. And reinventing that, so now, okay, the box is the same, people on the train are oblivious. They don't need to know. They're still throwing it out the door, but now farmers are gathering it and it's being recycled. Yeah. Wow. That is amazingly great. Yeah. On the one hand, that's sad because, you know, why the heck are people throwing things out windows? You'd think you wouldn't do that. But, yeah. but I think we also have to be realistic and acknowledge that people are going to send things out the window. Yeah. So um, we can continue to work to try and make sure they don't, but <laughs> if it's going to happen and that's a pretty good solution, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And there's other, there's other wonderful things. There's, a, there's another, uh, I forget what Janine Benyus' 
degree is in, but she's a visionary who is a consultant in, in doing biomimicry. So mm-hmm. she looks at nature and then she incorporates that nature into design. Like she worked on a, on a job. They wanted to come up with a paint that would either last longer or have, I think it was mostly last longer on big buildings. And she came up with the idea of, I believe, looking at fish scales or something and seeing how the how it you know how it was built and how it worked. And what they did is they reinvented the texture of a paint so that the water would run off it better and the buildings would stay cleaner and last longer. Well, just by looking at connect, nature. Yeah, we got to connect her up fast with uh with some of the folks that are trying to solve another problem. Um you know, there's this heat shock issue all around the world. Um mm-hmm. people are people are you know, having to cope with extreme heat. And in many of the poorest parts of the world, there are a lot of people living under corrugated steel roofs. And now in order to help them, uh, you know, literally some of them are dying and some of them are, are the most vulnerable people, you know, their children under the age of five and some of them in their first 1000 days of life, um, the heat is too much for them. And the solution is to paint the corrugated steel, uh, you know, roofs that they have on their, on their homes um, with a with a paint that will reflect the sun as opposed uh-huh. to absorb. So, whomever that person is that you just mentioned, it sure would be good to get that kind of thinking uh, into the into the because this is it all moves so quickly, doesn't it? You know, the next thing you know, before you know it, we've got millions and millions of people painting their their roofs with a paint that could be a better product. Um, right. It'd be nice to get that that connection happening. I'll get her contact information and get it to you. Yeah, please do, because I think I could put it in the hands of some people that might be able to, again, get it into the hands of the people that would make that kind of change happen. And could we jump even slightly further and just put solar panels on their roofs that were insulated so that they'd well, also be generating power? Right? You know, oh, money. Oh, money. that. Oh, sorry. I forget that part. Yeah, money. You know, yeah. Um, Someday, I hope we'll be able to do that fairly inexpensively. But right now, that's that's a hard ask. That's, yeah. All those of us that can afford to do that should be. Yep. I would say. I guess I'd have to yep. take a close look at what are the implications of of manufacturing all those solar panels versus uh, just maybe getting people a little bit more comfortable with getting outside in the heat of the day and coming in in the evening and things like that. But who knows? Well, and again, back to the if they were building their buildings with these block and stack. Hemp yeah. bl- bricks, they would have thermal insulation that was quite extraordinary. I mean, it's yeah. in countries where it's going to be 110 degrees, that's still a hard thing, but it's going to still make a difference because the thermal mass is going to not retain the heat as much. Yeah, and and, and in places like California, um, you know, it's heat and water, isn't it? So mm-hmm. um, I'm not, I don't want to discount the the importance of getting these types of things right in in places like California too. Um, you're a model for the rest of the world and uh, grappling with a lot of the issues that others are coping with and you've got the resources to innovate and explore. So um, maybe maybe some of the, the solutions can come out of a place like California that are relevant to big cities like Nairobi and Karachi and those are the cities I'm working in where there just simply aren't those kinds of resources. Right. There's a lot. A lot of stuff rolls through my brain when you say that. So that's, uh, yeah, I'll be, we can talk about that. 
There's, a, there's another one. It doesn't quite fit, I don't think, in, in the projects you're working on. But I, there's one that I admire a lot is the what I call transparent asphalt, where you take asphalt and combine it with chewed up rubber tires. And you also make it so that it's actually porous to the rain instead of the rain just running off. So when the rain hits it, it actually absorbs in through the asphalt under the into the soil instead of just being dumped into a stream, which because of how our systems were designed here, often just dump into the ocean. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. pretty dumb. I mean, I'm not anti-ocean, but I'm very pro having lived in California now under drought conditions really for the past, let's politely say, eight years. Really? Um, so it's about how we use our, you know, it's about everything, you know, like having an aqueduct system that's cement in California that moves the water around and stops it from actually simulating into the soil as it wants to and just being mm -hmm. dumped in places. Are you bad words come to mind? Yeah. So we, we need to look at the big pictures and I hear people talking about where they're trying to destroy some of the aqueducts and actually have soil naturally in nature water meanders meaning it goes through curves and it has function in that the way it purifies and the way the roots and things are going into this water it all has a, a process but you know cementing all that off and putting in an aqueduct is like what are you thinking mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah no i think this this is i i look forward 10 years uh with some some hope because i think you know we're, we are we are sitting on some of the solutions that could be um, instrumental and and I like I like the uh, the direction of, um, of of the innovations that we're seeing and and I just hope that we can find enough people to um, you know get together and and ensure that we're focusing on some of the unintended consequences you know sometimes we do things with without enough uh, consideration for the externalities that come along with the <laughs> The good uh -huh. idea. Uh -huh. um, so, I, I, I have trepidation and hope, you know, in that regard. <laughs> I have rage and maybe hope. <laughs> not exactly rage. I'm not a ragey person, but I'm definitely, my friends know that if they ask me, I'm going to talk with them, <laughs> whatever it is, about yeah. the environmental world of, why are you, what are you thinking, like, well, you know, I was going to try and leave the poor manatees alone, but I'm in such a bad mood about the manatees because of what's happening to their streams that they live in. In but particularly, this is in Florida. There's footage of you know, there's a group now of people in Florida who think the solution for the manatees is to take them cases of lettuce and feed them, mm. not thinking about why the manatees are in trouble in the first place. Right. The fact that you see a lot of footage of manatees in canals and the canals run along the backyards of all these really bright, shiny lawns that are really green and weed free. Yeah. And so to me, that indicates they're being sprayed with weed killer, which is more than likely glyphosate, glyphosate or Roundup, because that's the number one. And then on top of that, it's really bright green because you're putting too much fertilizer on it and you see the curve there's one particular picture that comes to mind. You see the curve of the soil and the earth going right to the stream. So that means every time you spray any of those on, it's just going to run right off into the stream where the manatees are. Yeah. So you have these yeah. large, soft-skinned mammals swimming around with this permeable coat on 
they'd be better off getting the manatees a bodysuit to protect them. Excuse so me. We gotta, you know, if you want to address the root of the problem, it's not just that people are putting the stuff on their green on their grass. It's that people want green grass, you know, fake yeah. green grass. I think if we really want to fix this one, we've got to do something to help people see how amazing it is to have a few weeds, like how beautiful a few weeds are. Yeah. Um, and, and that is going to be hard sell initially, <laughs> hard sell, but somebody's got to get cracking on that one. Well, I think the idea of having people be in a, in a kind way educated to the stunning beauty of seeing a yard with some weeds and beautiful plants growing, particularly in Florida where everything grows like a weed, mm-hmm. you can have an amazing collection of tropicals or not so tropicals or low maintenance things that perhaps even the bees and the butterflies might like. Nobody yeah. likes grass in nature. Nobody's like walking around. I mean, except for horses and cows in nature yeah. eating grass. And I live in an area where there's a lot of cows just wandering around on hilltops eating grass. They don't get fed grain. They don't get fed hay. They just eat mm-hmm. grass. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. They wander around and they're just moving art. As far as I look at them, like, look at that. It's like they arranged to be that spaced out. It's amazing. Uh, cows are wonderful. But yeah, exactly that idea of getting people reoriented away from the idea of picture perfect is the green lawn. Mm-hmm. What is that? That is like yeah. the silliest thing. I've, I'm not a, I've never been a lawn person. I, I grew up in a world of gardens and that kind of thing. So it's amazing. Yeah. The beauty of a garden, a wild garden, is a wonderful thing to behold. Yeah. And when you see a problem, it's not always a question of fixing the problem. It's a question of why is there a problem? Yeah. You know? So yeah. It's, 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 it's just, we need to really think differently. Think differently. I look forward to your next book. <laughs> I hear it brewing already. Think differently. <laughs> Damn it. Come on, people. Work with us. Yeah. We only have one planet. Let's try and work with it. Yeah. Next book or next column. You know, I thank you for some of the ideas you've given me today. I'm going to think about this now. <laughs> uh, next column. That's right. You just, yeah, it's like me doing a show. You, you and Doc just sit down and write columns. I, yeah. I don't have that skill yet, but I'm really happy to talk. And well, it's nice to talk with you. So thank you so much. Always a pleasure. I, I want to throw out one last thing. We're going to go just a couple minutes long. That I think it's really. This is an odd example, but I just think it's a cool thing that I see, particularly, again, because I live in an area where there are like three or four different ranches that breed, raise, and sell grass-fed, grass-finished beef. And in beef, mm-hmm. that's what you want. You want grass-fed, grass-finished, no grains. Grains are too tricky. Cows really don't think grains are good. They just get fed them because it fattens them up. And here... There's been a trend in the past five or six years where they take the manure, they collect the manure, and they put it in long tubes of plastic. Mm-hmm. That's a separate issue, plastic, but they reuse it often. And what they do is that they then, now they've in the past three to five years started gathering the methane off of that because yeah. it, it ferments and does everything. It's producing this methane gas, yeah. and they're gathering that gas, and they use it to power their generators or to run the heating system or, you know, to keep the cow's feet warm in winter or, you know, I don't know, I'm making it up, but I mean, they're actually gathering that methane, which used to just off gas. Yeah. And yeah. using it as a fuel. I love that. We're, we're seeing the, uh, we, we're, we're, we're building a lot of vertical farms up this way now. 
So mm-hmm. um, the idea of locating a, a cattle, uh, you know, next to a vertical farm is exactly for that. You've got the methane gas that can fuel the uh, energy needs of the vertical farm. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's something you're working on or you're aware of? Just, just aware of and, and okay. you know, trying again, I, I think I'll write a column on that one because it's uh it's it's just there's lots of, in Canada we've got lots of space. It's usually you know, finding the places to put things isn't usually the problem. So I think I'm gonna try and inspire a few uh aspiring farmers or vertical farmers to talk to each other. Um, you know, often you get the in fact, cannabis, for example, is often grown in vertical farms up here. And um, uh-huh. we've got a lot of cannabis plants and um but it doesn't need to be cannabis. It can be any kind of any kind of crops uh, that are suitable for indoor, you know, um, boutique-y kinds of things. Um, yeah. It works, and, and, and that's one way to kind of have this ecosystem and in, in ecosystem approach to farming. Right. And we'll and then I'll I will stop because we could go on for hours just <laughs> bantering back and forth about. And then there's this. There's also a gentleman, David Bloom who years ago wrote a book called Alcohol is a Gas. And he <laughs> has come up with a system. Uh, well, actually, again, he's somebody I happen to know, having met at a different conference, and been to his farm now in Watsonville. And he had a truck that went over 200,000 miles, and for 150,000 of those miles, it was running on 100% ethanol. Mm-hmm. Because you can adjust the timing in the engine with a little circuit box to do that. And that ethanol was ethanol that he was producing by taking waste from the local dump, putting it into a digester that he designed, which is using enzymes to stimulate the breakdown. And as that breaks down, you're ending up with a slurry that you can then use as a fertilizer, but you can also gather the methane and pressurize that, and that's what he would do, and then run his trucks on it. And at some point he was, in some point he was making enough ethanol and, and or methane himself that he was having trucks come and fill up, dump off the waste, fill up on what the waste was that they brought three weeks ago, and then go back out and get more waste. Yeah, that's that. And the byproduct, story. and the byproduct is fertilizer. Yeah, it's clean, and I love that. And now he's building systems around the world for people to have centers where you would take, like in the hemp world, I'm trying to get people in the hemp world and the cannabis world to take their waste and take it to a center like that and have it be processed out. So we're not just dumping more stuff into the waste. Let's actually use all this great food source for the enzymes. The enzymes are just waiting for the microbes. are just like, give us something. We'll work with it. And that's what he's done. That's a wonderful one. Yeah. Yeah. That's, these are great stories. And um, I, I, feel, I feel a little bit lifted when I hear that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I like to end on a higher note. Um, Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry to say that we have to stop. Where would you like to find people to find out more about you and the wonderful, I will put all this in the show notes, uh, this wonderful resource of the doc gif articles. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff there, but it's such a great, you, you really, those articles are a great resource. I'm always poking around in the library of articles. Well, thanks. Um, we've got around 2,400 articles that capture the issues of the day for decades now, um, and they're hosted at www.docgif.com. So that's D-O-C-G-I-F-F.com. 
And uh, yeah, you can peruse the menu um, to, to discover a little tidbits of information there. We've got a carousel of healthcare issues that you can search um, articles by healthcare topic. And um, yeah, we'll hope to keep it going for all the years to come. At first, you sort of just like, oh, it's casual reading because the articles are not long. A lot of really wonderful reference material there. And please, everybody, read the articles about vitamin C and Linus Pauling and Doc's experience. That's all I'm going to say. That's the hook. Go find it. I can't <laughs> recommend it enough. DocGift.com. Thank you so much, Diana. This was great. As always, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so much fun to speak with you. I learn a lot every time. Thank you. Everybody else, have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.